Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 22. What a tremendous, tremendous text we have in front of us this morning. Let me, uh, let me begin with prayer. Father, Lord, just in the midst of this congregation, I want to thank you for Danny Claus and for Ken Keith, for what they have meant to this congregation, what they continue to mean to this congregation. And Lord, I, I pray that... Um, the godly foundation of leadership that they have so diligently established would continue on. And Lord, that it would only increase, that we would abound more and more. But Lord, that has to be your work in this congregation. And so we ask, Jesus, that now as we give attention to your word, you'd build those things in us. Little by little, piece by piece, We pray that you would, Lord, this morning, unleash the transforming power of your word among us. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it can almost seem a little bit like a soap opera. You know, we're following the perils of the Apostle Paul as he makes his way through the Roman world, now finishing up his third missionary tour. And, you know, just like you would in some, you know, television series, you know, when we last left the Apostle Paul... And that's what it is like. When we last left the Apostle Paul, he was getting the stuff and beat out of him on the Temple Mount. He was up there to build a bridge to Christians from a Jewish background. And as he was up there on the Temple Mount undergoing some temple ceremonies, false accusations began to fly about the Apostle Paul from some enemies of his that were from out of town. I'm not going to go into greater depth than that. You, you can refer to some of our previous messages or just read the text carefully uh, for yourself from Acts chapter 21. But, but at the end of Acts chapter 21, Paul has to be rescued. He has to be extricated by sort of a SWAT team or special forces team of Roman soldiers that are pulling him out from a mob that wants to just beat, literally beat him to death. And as he's rescued from that mob, as the soldiers take him up and sort of almost in a crowd surfing kind of way, he's riding on top of the Roman soldiers as they take him up the stairs in the refuge of the Antonia Fortress. Paul speaks in educated Greek to the Roman commander. And he asks the Roman commander something remarkable. He asked for the permission to address a mob that had just literally tried to beat him to death. Why would Paul do such a thing? Why wouldn't Paul just sort of curl up in a fetal position and say, help me, please, keep me away from those bad people? Because Paul had an incredibly passionate love for his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. Paul loved them so much that as he describes in another place in the scriptures, in the book of Romans, Paul loved them so much that he said, I am willing to be accursed if they could be saved. I don't mean to put too fine a point of it, but that's a greater love that Paul had for them. I I feel kind of awkward saying this, but it's more love than I have for you. I mean, really, I'm just trying to be honest. I, I don't know if there's anybody that I would say, I'm willing to go to hell so that you can go to heaven. I mean, I want us to both go to heaven, thank you. I'll go there and you go there. But Paul loved that, that, in all seriousness, he said... I want them to be saved so much that I'm willing to be accursed if they could be saved. And now he thought, here's my opportunity. Because even though it was a crowd that just tried to kill me, at least it's a crowd. And I can preach to a crowd. And so he stood up there 
Acts chapter 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, can you picture this in your mind's eye? Does the movie run in your head? What a a moment of incredible drama in the New Testament record, right? This mob that had been shouting and throwing and kicking and punching, seething in its hatred for Paul, now it falls utterly silent. And let me tell you, there's something incredibly powerful about a large group of people that instantly drop silent, right? There's just a power, a dynamic to it. And Paul is feeding off of that. When he hears them go silent, do you understand what he's saying inside to himself? He's saying, thank you, Jesus. This is my opportunity. This is the opportunity I've waited all of my life for to present the gospel to my fellow Israelites. And I know I can connect with them. I'm one of them. We're cut from the same cloth. We've had the same experiences. I know I can reach these people. I can't prove it to you from the scriptures, but I'm just convinced in my own heart that that was Paul's heart as he began this. And he began to think because, you know, it's an amazing thing. Sometimes as preachers, we can actually think while we're talking. And he's thinking, well, yeah, it's true. He's thinking, this is the opportunity. I can't believe I get to do this. So now he begins, verse 3, speaking to that stone, silent crowd. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. With that opening line, he builds a bridge to his audience. Who am I? Paul says, I'll tell you who I am. First words, I am indeed a Jew. Now, please notice, he did not say, I was a Jew, but now I'm a Christian. As far as Paul is concerned, he's still a Jew, right? He hasn't turned his back on his Judaism one bit. And that theme will be persistent through the whole message that Paul preaches in this situation that we're going to see this morning. He wanted them to know through and through he had not turned his back on his Judaism in the slightest. Rather, he believed with all his heart he was fulfilling his Judaism by trusting in the Messiah to the Jews and indeed to the whole world, Jesus of Nazareth. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Okay, I wasn't born in Jerusalem, which sort of would have been a knock in their minds against him. But, notice it in verse 3, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Oh, I'll admit, Paul says, I wasn't born in Jerusalem. I wish I could have been. But I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem. And not only was I brought up here, I was brought up as a disciple of the great rabbi Gamaliel. Ladies and gentlemen, back in those days, great rabbis had disciples. Uh, There was a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth who had 12 disciples, right? But just as Jesus had disciples following him, so other rabbis in that day had disciples following them. And Gamaliel had a set of disciples that followed him around through the years. Paul was one of those disciples. Now that instantly gave him more credibility. They're checking the boxes, this great crowd, as they listen to him. Okay, he's a Jew. Oh, he grew up in Jerusalem. That's good. A student of Gamaliel. Well, well, that's really high marks in our mind because Gamaliel is a very highly esteemed rabbi. 
And then he says this. Did you see it in verse 3? Taught according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous towards God. Listen, I was full on for the law and I was zealous for everything that God wanted me to be. Paul states it this way in another way uh, in his letters. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 5 that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. Look, I, I don't say this with any kind of disrespect or flippancy. I just hope you get the point of what I'm saying. Maybe overlook the words I'm going to say and get the heart of it. Paul's trying to tell them, I wasn't just a Jew. I was a super Jew. I was, man, I really followed hard after it. I mean, in every aspect, the strictness of the law. I was zealous towards God. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 3. I find this to be very interesting, revealing something about Paul the public speaker, right? If you're speaking to an audience, you're looking to build a bridge, make a connection with your audience any chance you can. So look at the way he does this. He says at the end of verse 3, zealous towards God as you all are today. Now look, let's just pretend, and really let's pretend, that you are a murderous crowd that just tried to kill me. Let's just pretend along those lines, right? And I'm speaking to you, and I'm trying to think, what good can I say about you? Hmm. There's not a lot good. I can say this. You're really zealous towards God, right? Because you just tried to kill me in the name of God. And, well, you got a lot of energy. I'll give you that. I mean, he's like he's searching for something nice to say about a mob that just tried to kill him. Say, well, I can give you this. You're energetic. You're zealous towards God. But then he says this, going on, verse 4. Again, presenting his credentials to them. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And Paul says, let me tell you the extent of my zeal. I just told you that I was zealous towards God. Do you know how zealous I was? I was zealous that I persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ, those of the way, as it says there in verse 4. I persecuted them, not just a little bit, not just to put a little hurt on them, not to bruise them. I persecuted them to the death. Now, please understand, he's speaking to a crowd that just tried to kill him. It's almost like Paul says this. Yeah, you guys tried to kill me. I succeeded in killing Christians. You guys fired and missed. The Roman soldiers rescued me from you. But listen, there was nobody to rescue the people I went after. I did kill them. I was successful in murdering them. But I didn't only murder them. Verse 4 also says that he was binding and delivering them into prisons, both men and women. I didn't spare any. Oh, they're poor woman. Look at her. She's so nice. She's so delicate. Poor little thing. She probably has children. Paul's heart. I don't care. She's a follower of Jesus. Put her in jail. Scheduler for punishment, both men and women. That's how unsparing he was in his persecution. And then he says in verse 5, If you don't believe me, the high priest bears me witness. And so, so, so does all the counsel of the elders from whom I received letters. And then he says, I was so energetic, verse 5, that I went to Damascus to bring in chains those who were there. As if there were not enough Christ followers in Jerusalem to persecute, Paul took the show on the road. He said, I heard that there's these communities of Jesus followers springing up all over the place. We've got to stop this. We've got to crush this. And I'm going to find them even in distant places like Damascus. And I am going to stop them. Now listen, 
I find it very interesting that as Paul begins to build this bridge with the audience, he's really communicating something to them, right? He's communicating to his audience, I understand why you just attacked me. You just savagely beat me, but I get it. I get it because I used to think exactly the same way you did. I used to see a Christian and think, get him, just like you tried to get me. I want you to understand something. Paul had been a follower of Jesus for more than 20 years at this point, but he could still relate to how those who were not yet Christians thought. And sometimes I wonder if we fail on that regard. I wonder if we isolate ourselves so much from those people who are not yet believers that we've forgotten how they think. We've forgotten how we can connect with them. But Paul remembered. Paul remembered from his own life how he could look at somebody who was very lost and say, I remember what it was like to be in your situation. I hope you can remember that. I hope that you can look at people who haven't yet believed and look upon them with sympathy in your heart and say the love of Jesus goes out to you. I understand the guilt and the shame and the difficulty you live under because the light of the gospel hasn't shown upon your life yet. I want it to be extended to you. I hope you can have that sympathy towards them because that's what Paul had and that's what God wants us to have towards them. Well, how did Paul change? How did he move from this place of being a persecutor to now becoming someone who is persecuted? How did this great transforming power come to his life? Look at it here in verse 6. He says, Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Paul was an absolutely determined persecutor of those who followed Jesus until this heavenly light shone down upon him. It's as if Paul is saying to everybody, I was just like you are now until I had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus met me and my life was dramatically changed. Can I point something out to you? Jesus met Paul when Paul wasn't looking for him. Now, if you are looking for Jesus today, that's a big plus in your favor. Because Jesus said that if you seek me, you'll find me. That he'll never cast away anybody who comes unto him. But it's my good news to announce that maybe even if you're not looking for Jesus at all, he can still find you. Matter of fact, he's got your number. He can still totally disrupt your world and confront you with who he is just like he did Saul on the road to Damascus. Matter of fact, when Jesus did it, he spoke those memorable words. Did you see it right there in verse 8? He said those words, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I just can't get out of my mind what a complete shock those words were to Paul. A complete shock. 
Because in his mind, he thought he knew something about Jesus of Nazareth. Number one, he thought Jesus of Nazareth was dead. Number two, he thought that Jesus of Nazareth was cursed of God. And number three, he thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting these followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you realize that in one moment, when that line came from heaven, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, all of that was shattered for Paul. First of all, he said, this man's alive. He's alive because he speaks to me. Secondly, he speaks to me from heaven. That means not only is he alive, but he's exalted. He's in heaven. He's not cursed, but he's approved of God. And thirdly, it showed him that he was utterly, utterly wrong in persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. More than anything, those words from Jesus showed Saul of Tarsus, who we later call Paul the Apostle, that he was wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, sometimes that's the greatest gift that God gives to any one of us. The day he shows us, you're wrong. You're wrong. You've been living your life without me. You know what? You're wrong. You you thought I was something else that I could be found in exotic, strange, weird religions. You know what? You're wrong. You find me in Jesus Christ. You thought that you could find real fulfillment in your life by going your own way. You thought the key to happiness was more focus upon yourself. You know what? You're wrong. And the sooner you realize it, the sooner you see it, the better you'll have it. I wonder, I wonder if you remember the day when you saw that you were wrong and how great that was. What a great day it was. Because you know what? You can never get it right before God until you realize that you're wrong and that he has the right way. He shows you the right one, Jesus Christ. I pray because maybe there's here some this morning. You, You haven't yet seen that you're wrong. Well, wake up. Who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, that's what's right. Trying to save yourself through your religious good works or the performance of religious rituals? Wrong. Uh, Trying to please God by being a good boy or a good girl? Wrong. Um, Trusting in yourself, focusing on yourself? Wrong. Refusing to repent when God tells you to do it? Wrong. But today, you can be right in Jesus Christ. Now I think about it as well. There's probably some other people here, maybe at least a few. (laughs) You know what? You know you're wrong. And you feel like you've been wrong for a long time. Hey, the good news is you can make it right before God today. Trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. That's what's right. And Paul saw it that day on the road to Damascus. He didn't have to be wrong anymore. He could be right in Jesus. And so he entered into Damascus. He was led in there blind because he couldn't see because of the glory of that light. And look at what happened to him in the city of Damascus, starting now at verse 12. He says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will, should see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Please understand something. This good Jewish man, Saul of Tarsus, 
finds out that he was completely wrong about Jesus of Nazareth, and he changes his mind about who Jesus is, right? So who welcomes him into the kingdom of God when he comes into the city of Damascus? Another good Jewish man named Ananias, right? Did you see the description of Ananias? Verse 12, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews. Do you see what Paul is shouting to this crowd on the Temple Mount, even as he speaks from the steps that go up to Antonia Fortress? He's shouting to this crowd, I haven't forsaken my Judaism at all. I'm fulfilling it. I was a good Jew then, I'm a good Jew now, and a good Jew named Ananias welcomed me into the kingdom of God and told me, verse 14, that the God of our fathers has chosen me that I should know his will. I'm still serving the God of my fathers. I haven't rejected Judaism at all. Matter of fact, look at verse 14, if you will, for a moment. He says, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should, number one, Know his will. Number two, see the just one. And number three, hear the voice of his mouth. You know what? I think that's a great capsulization of everyone's duty before God. Here's your duty before God. Do you want to know what it is? Number one, to know his will. What does God want for your life? Well, know his will. It's right here in the book. Know what God's will is for your life. Number two, your duty before God, to see The just one. Now, who do you think that's referring to? Jesus, right? Just like with everything in a Sunday school class, if you don't know what the answer is, the answer is Jesus. Well, who is the just one? The ultimate righteous one. The ultimate one who has never sinned. The just one, Jesus. And God wants you to see him, to behold him. And how can you behold him? By reading about him in the word. This is what shows you the just one. Jesus himself. And then it continues on. The third idea. This is what God wants you to do. To hear the voice of his mouth. You know, if you would do those things every day. If you'd say every day, okay, God, today I want to know your will. I want to see Jesus. And I want to hear the voice of your mouth. I want to hear your word towards me. You'd have a very healthy Christian life. Just three things right there. And that was God's commission to Paul at the very beginning. Now, verse 17. In verse 17, Paul is hitting the fast forward button two or three years. He's condensing things for the sake of giving his testimony. So before this great multitude assembled there on the Temple Mount, he just told him about his conversion, how Ananias spoke to him. Now he says, verse 17, Now it happened that when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Paul was in Jerusalem to give a testimony. It right says there in verse 17, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. First of all, it strikes me that Paul, two or three years after his conversion, still went to the temple in Jerusalem and prayed there. Is this a man who's anti-Jewish? Is this a man who's against the temple? No. He's been a believer two or three years, and he's still seeking God in the temple. He wanted to know the crowd, wanted the crowd to know, I should say, that even though he trusted in Jesus, he was not against Jewish ceremonies. He was not against Jewish rituals, or at least not all of them. And then verse 17, he says, I was in a trance 
And I saw him saying to me, let me go off on a little digression here. Paul is in the temple, right? He's praying to Jesus. And now in a trance, in some kind of vision, in some kind of waking dream, in some kind of experience, Jesus appears to him, right? You know what I find fascinating about this? Jesus appears to him and Jesus speaks to him. Paul never makes mention of this in his letters. Not once. And we wouldn't have known it unless he spoke up about it here in this trip. And it happened some 20 years before this. Now, all I can say is this, is if I ever had such an experience, I went to the temple in Jerusalem and Jesus appeared to me and Jesus spoke to me, you would not get me to shut up about it. I'd be telling everybody I knew. I'd be writing books, right? I'd be doing a speaking tour. How I met Jesus when I prayed in the temple. What Jesus said to me in the secret place of the temple. I would be taking my own personal experience and I'd be publicizing it as much as I could just so everybody knew how spiritual I was, right? And if I can make a few bucks off of it, all the better, right? Thank you, Jesus, that that's not the spirit of the Apostle Paul, right? For for Paul, he doesn't focus on this at all. Oh, oh, he related the incident right here because it was useful to relate. But he doesn't dwell on it, and he never mentions it in any of his letters. It just makes you wonder, how many profound spiritual experiences did Paul have that he just never talked about, right? Because you know what? They weren't for publicity. They weren't for telling other people about. They were for what God was doing in Paul's life at that moment. Anyway, don't miss the message of what Jesus told him. That's in verse 18. What was the message? Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. You see, this word from Jesus was probably a surprise to Paul. Paul was in Jerusalem. He wanted to talk to the Jewish people about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, especially with what Jesus had done on the cross. And he probably thought of himself as the perfect messenger to bring this gospel to his fellow Jewish people, right? I know them. I'm one of them. God, won't you use me? This is perfect. I'm so happy that I'm in Jerusalem to do this. Matter of fact, it wouldn't surprise me if he was praying in the temple, asking God to give him effective ministry to the Jewish people that he saw all around him. This was his heart. This was his dream. Thank you, Lord. And then Jesus says, no, no. I want you to make haste and get out of here because they're not going to listen to you, Paul. Now, what did Paul say? I love this. I love the next verse, verse 19, because well, it gives me hope. Paul says this, So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Do you understand what Paul's saying in verses 19 and 20? He's objecting to Jesus. Jesus told him, Paul, get out of there. They're not going to listen to him. And Paul says, no, Jesus, uh, didn't you really know that that... Look, I was really a persecutor of Christians, and, and, and I was even there supervising the death of Stephen. And Jesus, don't you really get it, that I can really get through to these people? They'll relate to me? He's objecting to what Jesus told him to do in verses 19 and 20. Saying, Jesus, I, I don't know if you're fully informed on this, about my background and everything. Now, friends, just can't we agree that when we're sort of helping Jesus to understand a situation, we're wrong, Right? It's as if Paul was saying, Lord, let me shed a little light on this for you. No, 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 no. 
Jesus told you to make haste and to get out of there. And you're objecting. And you're saying, well, Jesus, maybe I should, maybe I should do it. No, no, no. And then look at what Jesus said to him in verse 21. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here from the Gentiles. The way I picture it in my mind's eye, the way the movie runs in my mind, Paul's saying, well, no, Lord, don't you understand? But you see, I was a persecutor of them in every synagogue, and I imprisoned a bunch of them, and I even supervised. And even while he's speaking, Jesus says, no, depart, for I'm going to send you far from here from the Gentiles. Paul, I know you love your fellow Israelites. I know you have a heart for the Jewish people. I know you think that you can reach them. And on a human level, you should be able to because you have the same background. You have the same connection. You were exactly where they were at. But Paul, I'm telling you, get out of there because I'm going to send you far across to the Gentiles. Now, I find it interesting and unlikely that God took this man, and again, I want to say it respectfully, this man who was a super Jew, and he made him the apostle to the Gentiles. But that's exactly what he did. He said, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And so presumably, Paul left immediately and got to work on ministering to the Gentiles as Jesus had called him to do. Now, I say presumably because I'd stop deliberately at the end of verse 21 Because Paul's last word in verse 21 was like a hand grenade that he threw into the crowd. Can we read ahead? Verse 22. And they listened to him until this word. Right? You see the crowd? They're following his every word. They're enthralled. He talks about Jesus. Was that okay with the crowd? Yeah. He talks about having his life transformed by Jesus. Was that okay with the crowd? Sure. Talk on, Paul. He talks about seeing Jesus in the temple. Was that okay? Yeah, we're all ears. Keep going. Then he says, what Jesus told him his work would do, I'm going to send you far afield to the Gentiles. And that one word, let's read it again, verse 22. And they listened to him until this one word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. And then they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. What did Paul do? What did he do? Did, did he insult the crowd? Did, did he tell them how terrible they were or their ancestors were? No, no. What I want you to understand is that what Paul did, and it's sort of painful for me to tell you this. Paul told them, That God had the same love for the Gentile people that he did for the Jewish people. Now, you and I hear that and we go, yeah, so? You're kind of accustomed to the idea that God loves everybody without respect, right? You're sort of accustomed to that idea. I have to say, for many, not all, but for many people of first century Judaism, this time that Jesus and Paul lived, honestly saying, they hated the Gentiles. They hated him. One rabbi said something like this. He said, let me tell you why God created Gentiles. He created them to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's why he created Gentiles. Now, please, I want to be very clear. Not every Jewish person of the first century believed that way. Not every rabbi taught that. But there was enough of that feeling in the ancient world that on that day when Paul spoke to that great mob on the Temple Mount, that they went crazy. They started shouting, away with him, 
kill him. He's not worried to leave. They started ripping their clothes in a feigned demonstration of blasphemy. They started throwing dust in the air as a feigned show of mourning. They went absolutely crazy because Paul said, God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves the Jewish people. I don't know what prejudices there may be in your life that God would want to speak to. I pray that he would wipe them away by the power of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd come to see what God wants to show each and every one of us. The message of Jesus, the message of Paul, the message of the New Testament. That that you can come to God just as you are. Jew, Gentile, foreigner, High, low, rich, poor, everybody can come. But here's the catch. You must come to God through Jesus Christ. If I could put it this way, the door is wide open, but there's just one door, right? But that door is open to everybody. So come. Put your faith in Jesus. You feel like you've been excluded because you're not that kind of people or you come from a different background. No, never. Come, Jesus says, come. Let whoever will drink freely of the water of life, let him come and drink. That invitation is given out broadly to everybody. But that crowd couldn't hear that. That crowd, they wanted somebody to speak to their predetermined prejudices. So what did they shout out? Verse 22, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. That outraged, violent response was over one single word that Paul said, the word Gentiles. They expressed their hatred through violence, through action, through activity. Friends, let me just say, um, that's one way to express hatred, isn't it? There's a second way you can express hatred. Total indifference. I can say, I hate you, I want to punch you in the face. Well, that's sort of a violent expression of hatred, right? There's another way I can say I hate you. I hate you, and I don't care a thing about you. I'm completely indifferent towards you. I think by and large, our society, and certainly our community, we too pretty good when it comes to to, to, uh, putting the lid on those active displays of hatred. And that's a good thing. But can I say if there's anything God needs to stir our heart about, let's not express our hatred through indifference. Let's not look at a perishing world around us and say, oh, well, whatever. Let's have the love to care about those who keep on living without the answer that Jesus Christ is for their life. Look, as you sort of come away from this scene, and we have to leave it right here. I mean, what happens after this? What happens after this crowd just explodes and and Paul is there on the steps thinking, oh, my heavens, that didn't work at all. What happens next? Well, that's for next week as we get together in the text. Look, I want you to think about it as as you come away from this and see Paul there with his heart sinking because this opportunity just seems to have exploded in his face. Paul is a transformed life, speaking to many lives that needed to be transformed. And how did Paul know that their lives could be transformed just like his? Because he was in the same place. 
He hated others just the way that they did at one time. He had the same hatreds, the same prejudices, and he had been set free by the power of God from that. The transforming power of God was real in his life, so he knew it could be real in the life of other people. Let me tell you, I have the same confidence before you this morning. The transforming power of God is real in my life and the life of many hundreds here right now. It can be real in your life. Today could be that great day when either you realize you're wrong and now you want to get right with God, or you've known you're wrong for a long time. Now here's the time to get right, for you to repent and for you to believe on Jesus Christ, the provision that God made through him at the cross. That's being right with God. So, Father, that's my prayer for this, this blessed group, Lord, this... this uh, this congregation here and now. Lord, we, we pray that you deal with whatever prejudices we have. We, we pray that you'd cleanse us from hatred expressed either actively or through indifference. We pray that you do that great transforming work in our life. But Lord, I, I pray. I pray for those here who have yet to experience it. I pray that you'd move upon them to trust you right now. My friends, will. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed in reverent prayer to God. I I just want to give an invitation right now. Maybe today for the first time you realize you've been wrong and now you want to make it right with God. Maybe for a long time you've known you've been wrong, but now you want to make it right. If that's you, I just want you to pray quietly after me right now. You can whisper this prayer, but you've got to mean it with your heart. Just pray after me. Jesus, I come to you as I am. I know I've been wrong, but I know you can make me right. I stop trying to make myself right before you, but I simply want to repent and receive what Jesus did on the cross for me. I want Jesus to be my righteousness, Jesus to be my goodness. Jesus to be my purity. Set me free and help me to follow Jesus. I give you my life in Jesus' name. Amen.